HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Kim Jordan, co-founder of New Belgian Brewing. In today's episode, we'll talk to Kim about the pandemic's impact on the beer industry, what it means to run a progressive business, and we'll hear Kim's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to our first episode of Season 8. First, a disclaimer. HRN Studio is temporarily closed, so recording this episode remotely may sound a little different than usual, but we're grateful to have technology that allows the show to go on. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We hope that Julia's legacy continues to offer people comfort and inspiration in these difficult times. Our hearts go out to all of those impacted by the COVID-19 virus, whether health mind, or wallet. One thing a pandemic makes us think about is what do we value? With Julia, she made it pretty clear. She admired those who produced the best stuff. She practiced what she preached in terms of being a lifelong learner. She led by example, and she was dedicated to lifting up colleagues and giving back to her community. She also valued having fun. These Julia values neatly align with those established at New Belgian Brewing by co-founder and former executive chairwoman, Kim Jordan. If you don't recognize New Belgium by name, you might be more acquainted with their best-selling brands of craft beer, like Fat Tire. New Belgium is the fourth largest craft brewery in the United States, sold in all 50, as well as in many international markets. Kim and her colleagues have built the brewery as a progressive business in an era 
when those terms have tended to be opposing forces. At the heart of the company lies Kim's vision for inclusion, fairness, opportunity, sustainability, and of course, great beer. An active philanthropist, Kim has served on the boards of the Brewers Association, 1% for the Planet, the Advanced Energy Economy, and is currently on the Board of Governors for Colorado State University, Hog Island Oysters, and the Founders Council for Lion Little World Beverages. Kim and her sons established the New Belgian Family Foundation in 2013 as part of their personal commitment to social and environmental causes. We know her best as a member of the National Museum of American History's Kitchen Cabinet, in which the foundation also participates. Her advocacy for beer as an important part of American culture and business extends to the Innovative American Brewing History Initiative, which we explored with the Smithsonian's one and only beer curator, Teresa McCullough, in episode 55. Kim joins us today to share her perspective about the current challenges for a craft brewery and a progressive business during COVID-19. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. Good morning, Todd. How are you today? I'm just fine. And I'll, I'll shoot that right back at you. How are you and how have you and yours been doing right now? You know, we are so fortunate. It, you can't help but think about all of the people in America who are um, silently toiling to make sure that we have food on shelves and, um, you know, as, as good a medical care as we can have in this situation. So it's hard for me as someone who's sitting in my home trying to make sure that I stay well and don't make anyone else sick um, to have anything to say, but I feel wildly fortunate and I'm, um, every bit as appreciative of all of those people who are making America continue to run in this crazy time. Well, thank you for that. And, and we feel exactly the same. And if that, um, it is, a time to count your blessings and be grateful to to those who are dedicating themselves to everyone else's service. Yeah. So what, well, cut to this subject at hand, which I'm really interested to learn about, as I'm sure our listeners are, is, you know, lots of people make jokes about needing a drink now and then or all the time during this, or whether you can start at 10 because it's a pandemic. But what, what's been the actual impact on, on New Belgium's business? For us, that has translated into more off-premise sales. Um, that's when you take beer to go to, you know, to drink in your home. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not a one-for-one correlation, um, but we are doing fairly well in that way. And I would also say that I think our coworkers have done an amazing job of organizing the way we work. Um, we've gone to a different shift pattern so that no shifts um, overlap and people work one shift with the same people all the time um, as a way to make sure that we're keeping people as safe as we can keep them. All of our our folks who are able to sit at a desk to do their work are working from home. We haven't um, had any kind of furloughs or layoffs at New Belgium. So that's, um, you know, we're all really proud of the fact that we've been able to um, continue that strong commitment we have to one another and to making sure that... um, among our community of coworkers, we get through this as solidly as we can with a lot of both appreciation for one another and just the nuts and bolts of making sure that people still have health care and a paycheck and all of the things that all of us need. Well, yeah, and I guess you're in two fortunate positions. One is that people still have a desire to consume beer if they can during these kind of situations. And that also your business was at a place, and I I say this not with a lot of knowledge, but in comparison to other craft brewers, you were quite, as a bigger one, well-established in 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 um, regular retail, as I can't remember the lingo, versus bars and restaurants uh, being dependent on them or your own premises. Yeah, um, 
you know, one of the things that happened in craft brewing in the last, gosh, four years or so is an explosion of small local uh, breweries who weren't, you know, it used to be there were two models. There was the um, production brewery like New Belgium, and then there was the brew pub, a place that had both a restaurant and a typically smaller brew house and brewery in it. Um, there's in the last several years emerged a third model, which is the tasting room model. People who don't have a restaurant per se, maybe they, there are food trucks that, that go there, but they, all of their revenue or almost all of their revenue comes from people coming to their location to, uh, drink beer and it's been a significant industry shift and mind shift. And sadly, um, those breweries are being hardest hit because their model really depended on people being able to come into the brewery. And that's been obviously um, in almost every state curtailed. Mm. And do you, do you think it's, uh, I mean, it, that was that ever, well, I guess my question is, in your business for New Belgium, was it pretty evenly split between on-premises and, 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 and regular retailer locations in terms of your split of sales, or was it always weighted to one or the other? In our early days, it was, we were more weighted um, in, well, actually, in the early days, we were more off-premise. So uh, we started out at New Belgium nearly 30 years ago, only making uh, packaged beer in 22-ounce bottles. As time went on, we also started making keg beer, which is typically beer that you would, you know, drink at a bar or a restaurant. And at that time, our split was really weighted a little bit more to the on-premise. So we were, you know, 60 to 70% on-premise and the balance in off-premise. Over the years, we've, um, that ratio has flipped and we're um, 70, 75% off-premise. So um, that current business model in terms of this, um, you know, commercial reality um, has been helpful for us. Um, and there are lots of breweries who are also skewed fairly heavily in the off-premise selling their beer in grocery stores and liquor stores who... Um, you know, this is just a tough time for brewers, craft brewers, um, craft food makers across the America to be able to get whatever it is they make into their customers' homes and hands. And are the um, re retailers who are off-premise, like the grocery stores and, and liquor stores, are they telling you, it's, is, um, do they have any data yet? Is beer consumption actually up from, from those venues, or it's kind of the same, or what have you heard? It was up in the beginning. Um, I think that was a case of people loading in so that, you know, if they were infrequently shopping, they had, you know all kinds of supplies um, <laughs> that they needed, including beer. Being a staple. Um, it, yeah, it has, um, it has sort of gone up and down a little bit, and it seems to be leveling off um, slightly down from last year as a category as a whole. So that's all beer. Mm. Um but not wildly down. Hmm. Well, I guess that's somewhat reassuring that it, it it sounds like the interpretation is the early spike was likely hoarding and the leveling off is that fortunately things aren't so bad that people have doubled their at-home consumption to, to cope. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, um, you know, one of the things that's a part of our 10 core values and beliefs is the responsible enjoyment of beer 
and the promotion of beer culture. So um, we hope that people are making beer a part of a daily ritual of stopping to um, be thankful and enjoy the um, companionship of the people around them if they're lucky enough to be able to have that in their lives. Um, and of course, we also hope that they do that responsibly. I want to go back to what you were mentioning. You said sort of how you've changed some of your production processes with people working. I think you said similar shifts. Are there other things that you've done or even needed to alter to just kind of maintain, I was going to say business as usual, that's not the case, but maintain being in business? Um, Well, we've, all of our um, tasting room co-workers are, of course, not working in the tasting room because they're not open. Um, so we've, those people are doing other things, uh, for the brewery. Um, so their jobs have shifted. And as I said, uh, anyone who works at a desk is working at home. We have really tried to be fairly strict about, um, you know, people not coming into work for any reason. Um, so, you know, that's going on. And then uh, shifts are just, you know, we're trying to make sure that there are discrete um, lanes of people working so that they're only working around one another. We've also implemented some, you know, if for some reason you get on a plane or um, travel to another state, Um, that you quarantine at home for uh, two weeks before you come back to the brewery. So um, we also, we have an on-site medical clinic at New Belgium with a a doctor, Dr. Patty and and her staff of coworkers. Um, So, you know, in addition to our, the work that we have with our environmental health and safety people at New Belgium, we have a doctor who's participating in some trials with um, with other physician groups in the industry that are doing research, and she's um, on the front line with all of New Belgium management in making sure that we're being as progressive in our stance around this pandemic as we've been in our business practice over the last 30 years. Wow. And so is that medical clinic, is that something you always had or you put in as a a progressive measure with the pandemic? No, we've had, um, uh, we call it a wellness clinic, Um, but we've had a wellness clinic for mm, five years now. So it's something you were able to, you actually had in-house that you've just sort of adapted and its focus shifted a bit given the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she's also, she continues to see um, New Belgium co-workers and their families as patients even now. But, you know, the focus has been more on keeping people well and trying to keep people out of coming in to see her except for you know in you know situations where someone absolutely needs to see a doctor or there are you know concerns about people having contracted COVID-19. And right do you you have two production facilities that are actually quite far apart right? One in Asheville. And, yep. and so how has that made things like, I mean, did you used to have management that went back and forth between them or it was always kind of you could do it at, at a distance and that wasn't so critical? Well, we've always tried to make sure that we keep a strong connection between the two breweries. So yes, our management um, and leadership teams, both from Asheville come to Fort Collins and from Fort Collins go to Asheville. But you can imagine now we're not, um, we're doing a lot, just as everyone else is, we're doing a lot of video chatting. And that ultimately is is something that you've been able to adapt to. It, it, it was um, feasible. Yeah, we already had that capability. And I know that our team has been working to, you know, to 
work out those bugs that we've had in the past to make that system even more um, robust and, and capable. So, and, you know, it does, I think it will be interesting for Americans everywhere to be thinking about, do I need to get on a plane to do that? Um, because they're both health reasons, but also um, environmental reasons to, you know, really make sure that we're getting on a plane for the right reasons. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there were a lot of just accepted practices that were convenient, and it was done, and people like seeing each other. But before we move to break, right. I want I did want to hear some more if you'd had any feedback from your customers, and you can define customers however you, you like, because you have multiple, I think, faces to customers, but what kind of things or what stands out on your mind that you've been hearing back from them about how they've been coping? Well, first, I would say that um, I am no longer the CEO. And so um, that really falls to our CEO, Steve Fetchheimer, and his leadership team. Um, I hear some of those things from them as we check in you know, every week or week and a half, um, just to kind of keep in touch. Um, and you're right, we do have customers at a few different levels. Um, we have distributors who are um, our partners in making sure that our beer gets from our brewery into their warehouse, out of their warehouse, and, and to um, off-premise customers. And, you know, they are, they are struggling with some of the same kinds of things that the brewing uh, swath of the industry are struggling with. And so we're, um, we continue to work with them. Um, we have a couple of brew pubs in San Francisco, and we've opened both of those up to serve food hmm. um, and beer to go. Um to go, uh, not food in-house, but food to go. And um, I read some comments from customers the other day in in one of the two locations, because we had just opened that up about a week ago, that they were really appreciative that we um, were providing a place in the neighborhood for people to pick up to go food. Um, I think, I think, across the country, people have been really good about a mix of wanting to try to still support their cherished restaurants um, by buying to-go food and also staying at home so that they're staying safe and also keeping, you know, trying to ensure that they're not making other people sick. So, I think we're all trying our very best to be supportive of one another while we also recognize that staying home is um, the safest thing we can do right now. That is good to hear. We are all, I think, the best of us doing our part. Okay, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back to talk to Kim Jordan, co-founder, New Belgian Brewing, about her outlook for the craft beer industry in a post-COVID future. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Kim Jordan, co-founder of New Belgian Brewing, about the beer industry's future. So I'm sure, Kim, you had kind of like back in February even, this view of thinking about where uh, the craft brewing industry might be in the future and we're 
you know, I know you do a lot of advising in the industry and have lots of contacts and have been very active. So how has that whole trajectory of thought kind of changed or where are you at with where you thought things were going and where you think they might be going now? Gosh, it, it really was only February, wasn't it? It seems like it's been nearly a lifetime. Um, and also like the blink of an eye. Mm, it's funny mm. how time bends in those kinds of ways. Um, I, you know, it will be interesting to see what happens. I think um, it, this will be sort of bifurcated in some ways. Um, one of the things that I think... Um, we will see is people on the one hand trusting uh, craft brew larger craft brewers brands as trusted well-made um, you know available um, very high quality beers while also really um, wanting to support and enjoy the beers from local craft brewers who they haven't been able to see in many months. Mm. Um, I, I think clearly there will be a shakeout. Um, I think there were people who were possibly with all of the competition, uh, the, the, uh, number of craft brewers has more than doubled in the last three years. Mm. So, you know, that's a pretty significant load of supply um, while demand was um, really essentially flat. Mm. Um, maybe maybe up some, but, but not in any huge number. So, so you're spreading those barrels over a lot more breweries. And I think that there were breweries who were... Um, who had either prepared for growth that started, you know, uh, um, installing new capacity at a brewery is, uh, it, you know, is an 18 month to three year, depending on your process and your locale um, proposition. Mm. And so I think there were people who were preparing for capacity and then this wave of new brewers came along, and I so that kind of left them a little financially shaky anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think we will see that there are people who were either in that position, and this was just sort of the tipping point for them. And then you'll also see people who just, you know, through no fault of their own, that their model really didn't support them hanging on for several months. And, and, you know, we don't, I think, have any reason to think that people will be allowed back in any kind of hospitality situation in the same way that we used to um, do that. I was talking with someone the other day who had listened to Danny Meyer on a podcast um, and Danny Meyer was the Julia Child Foundation um, award recipient uh, two or three years mm -hmm. ago. Um, and, it, you know, if you're talking about people being able to occupy the footprint of a restaurant at a rate that is, say, 25 or even 50%, restaurants and bars are low margin, uh, hopefully high volume businesses. Mm. Um, and to operate at a fraction of your typical capacity will be nearly impossible for a lot of bars and restaurants. So, you know, we have a whole um, working out of what the future of hospitality looks like ahead of us. Um, I think on the, on the happy side, <laughs> um, I think we, yeah, that's not very hopeful news, I know. Um, on the happy side, I think we are all reminded how much 
um, other people matter to us, how much socializing and interacting with people, how important that is. And there's nothing more um, archetypal or universal for the human condition than sitting down to have a beer or have a beer and a meal um, with people that you like and care about. So, you know, we're going to have to figure out how we do this in a way that is um, new and um, responsive both to our innate drive to get together to, to socialize and in response to um, a huge sector of our economy called hospitality. But do you, I think, I think that's a very valid concern, but what I haven't heard discussed as much with the, the kind of fear factor, which is definitely real, or the cognitive dissonance of like Georgia being open, but then no one wanting to go and, and owners not really wanting to put their staff or their customers in that risk. But I also think, isn't all of that relative to how quickly do we have a vaccine, how quickly do we have a treatment, and how quickly do we have antibody tests? And that that those trajectories are all relative to each other. Or, or do you see or have you heard people saying, well, it doesn't apply, you can't plan that way? Um, no, I think that's exactly right. I think um, until, you know, there will be people who go out um, but I think until we really are able to say um, we've got this and actually back that up with um, literal capability to test people. You know, I think one of the difficult parts of this is we don't yet understand, although I think we're getting much closer, we don't yet understand if you get COVID-19, are you then, um, you know, mm. guaranteed of immunity? Uh, we don't know that for sure. We don't know, you know, we, that's why the antibody testing is so important. Um, I think, I think just because it is more common, a more common experience for us, the vaccine is huge because people being able to say, I got the shot. I'm, you know, I'm pretty guaranteed or, or the, my, my ability to believe that I'm fairly safe is very high. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think we're going to be out of this. I'm not sure we're going to be out of this ever, not just from COVID-19, but I think there's no reason to think that there won't be um, issues with other uh, viruses that are quick to um, change their characteristic. So, yeah, I, I think, I also think we don't know what's going to happen in the fall and whether, you know, how far out of the woods we will be. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of unknown yet ahead of us. And I think that that is, um, that makes people feel nervous, understandably. Yeah, no, I think between human nature and business nature, it's all about planning. And when you really can't plan, it really sort of twists your mind up in pretzels, like a pretzel. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to switch gears to a sort of broader topic, which I, I mean, you're going to tell me whether it's COVID related or not, but I'm interested in. And so New Belgium was well known and also well admired for being 100% employee owned for a significant period of time. And I realized that changed at the, I think at the very end of last year, or maybe even didn't get implemented until the beginning of this year. And I was curious if you could just tell us how that transition has gone and what that mean and, and what precipitated the change. Um, it, it, the transaction did happen at the end of last year. We announced um, to our co-workers um, like in the last two weeks of last year. Actually, we announced a little before that and asked them to embargo that because they needed to have uh, 30 days um, 
30 business uh, no 20 business days 30 days in total to consider the transaction and vote mm-hmm. on it um, because we were a hundred percent employee owned um, how has that changed I think you know it's one of those kind of kismet situations where um, just from a straight up, COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic way, I think it's given um, everyone a great deal of comfort to know that we are um, in partnership with a really great brewery in Australia, Lion Brewing. Um, Our parent company is Kirin Brewing in Japan. And um, that partnership, while while still young and unfolding, is um, one that we feel really good about. Um, The reason that the partnership was so attractive um, as we were considering it, was our the congruency of our belief in business as a force for good. And so um, we were uh, very early on talking about things like um, keeping our B Corp uh, certification and encouraging other parts of the Lion Brewing Empire to consider becoming certified B Corps as well. Um, It might be helpful to just take a moment and describe that. B Corp is a, um, a way of operating a company through a certification mechanism that says that in fact, boards of directors Um, will make sure that they are taking into account the needs of a a broad variety of stakeholders. Um, A typical director on a board of directors has a fiduciary responsibility to maximize the value of shares. In a B Corp company, while certainly being profitable is, you know, you can't stay open if you're not profitable, it's also important that we look at the um, the way that we support our coworkers, the way that we um, think about our impact on the planet, and also the relationship that we have in the communities where we do business. And um, we are we. As a part of our B Corp certification, uh, a sister company called B Lab brings in a third party group of certifiers who um, measure our capability on a variety of fronts, um, governance, environmental impact, uh, social justice and co-worker Um, relationship and community engagement um, to make sure that we are um, walking the walk that we talk. So um, it's a really innovative and terrific program. And we've been a part of it for many years and are happy to see that we can grow that capability with Lion Kieran into other parts of the organization. Our current setup, you know, they um, are in Australia primarily, um, and of course, nobody is traveling right now. So again, we're doing a lot of interacting by um, Zoom meeting, and um, we are, um, you know, that has... We, are, we continue to work through all of the kinds of integration things that um, one would work through in any normal transaction, while also recognizing that for now, there is a bit of a pause on the day-to-day, you know, sitting together over a beer to dream up a big future, while we're still actively working on those things we're just not in a face-to-face situation to be able to do that yeah and so i'm curious just just because that was obviously a a big thing that you helped facilitate and support that transfer to employee ownership and while not unheard of it you know is considered progressive and i think 
to me happens a little less and less than it used to. So what was it that really precipitated? Did you guys just get an offer that you couldn't refuse? Or was there actually something where it just made sense to change? I just Only because it, was, it seemed to be such a core aspect of, of New Belgium's identity. I was surprised to see the change. Yeah. Um, well, first, let me start by saying that um, our co-workers over the life of our ESOP um, received nearly $200 million in value. So, And I'm really proud of that because I think to, um, to acknowledge that broadly shared equity reached all the way down into the organization um, and enriched the lives of lots of people. Um, I just think that's a really good outcome that makes me um, proud of the work we did over all of these years with employee ownership. Um, Why did we do it? Um, You know, we were both in an industry that had become very competitive and um, we built the brewery in Asheville, which for capacity needs is something that will take us well into the future, but certainly has debt service on it that um, was, was certainly a weight on our balance sheet. And in a competitive marketplace, you really want to sort of heavy up on your um, your ability to talk to beer drinkers across the country. So make sure that our, our marketing and sales spends were appropriate for our revenue. We also had um, a note to my sons and myself as a part of our initial transaction of selling the company. Uh, to our coworkers through the ESOP and all of those um, different lanes on our balance sheet and our P&L were a lot to um, to digest all at once. And so we felt like to get our balance sheet in a stronger position um, would really make us a stronger company. And we were very selective. We didn't run a process, so to speak. We started talking with the people at Lion Kieran. And as I said, one of our very first conversations was with their board of directors at my house in Fort Collins. We had a, we had a summertime alfresco dinner and, um, we really started talking about the possibility, both with B Corp and with making sure that we were um, looking at how we could produce a lot of our own power um, and just really show up in the way that New Belgium has been known for over all of its years. And it was just kind of this magical moment where we realized that we were very aligned in our thinking and that it would be a very good outcome for New Belgium's corporate capability and for our co-workers um, to be able to realize some of the value that we'd built in New Belgium um, on their, you know, in their own personal lives. And, and we'd heard from a lot of coworkers that that was something that was very meaningful for them, that they wanted to be able to feel like all of the work that we had put in all of these years had a good outcome for them. So all of those things allowed us to go in that direction. And a lot of what may, you know, ownership was, one piece of our corporate culture. A lot of the other things that are really important to us, we have what we call high involvement culture, which means that all of our coworkers know where the money goes. We practice open book management. We meet with them every month to talk about, you know, how our metrics for the business are going. Once a year, we kick kick off a strategy building session with a retreat at both of our breweries where everyone participates in building the strategy and talking with leadership about things that they think are important. We have a really high degree of transparency and a celebration of sort of love and 
and community building among us, um, making sure that we're, you know, every day trying to be excellent at what we do. All of those things are still in place. And um, so I think we're teaching Lion Kieran things about our corporate culture and they're teaching us things about theirs. And um, it's different, but it is not a matter of different being um, bad. It's just different. And in this current climate, there's really a lot of appreciation for all of the strength that this gives New Belgium to be aligned with a great international company. Yeah, I can imagine that it's feeling like quite a fortuitous decision to a lot of people right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's these are shaky times, and to know that we're part of a stronger structure um, is really reassuring. All right. So are you a craft beer fan or even a home brewer? How have you been managing to enjoy a beer in COVID times? Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know. After the break, we're sticking with adding a bright spot to your day with Kim's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Kim, your turn. What's your Julia moment? Well, I think like a lot of people, my Julia moment was that every Sunday moment. So it was it was a weekly hit of Julia. My family um, were devoted watchers of her show. And, um, you know, for my parents, that meant getting the Sunday cocktail and, um we would all sit in front of the TV, typically with cheese and crackers, you know, on the on the uh, coffee table, and and watch another um, sometimes funny, always interesting session of the Julia Child show. So, um, and then more specifically, since I've been on the Smithsonian Kitchen Cabinet to learn that um, people bring butter to Julia's kitchen in the Smithsonian to leave it as, you know, little... An offering. Um, and, yeah, an offering and an homage to Julia. Apparently, you know, the, uh, the janitorial staff come around in the evening and clear out all the butter that's been left for the day. So um, I just find that both... Um, hilarious and touching all at once that um, clearly Julia meant so much to so many people that they would literally bring butter with them, you know, in their pilgrimage to look at Julia's um, wonderful and, and also very pragmatic kitchen that's in the Smithsonian Museum. Well, thanks for those those Julia moments. That that that's uh, I actually had not heard that before. So I will I will keep my eyes out for butter next time I'm there. Oh, good. I'm glad that I had you know because if you watched it every week, there were uh, there's the chicken you know that flies off the counter, and um, but I'm glad that I had a moment that maybe not many people are that aware no, of. No, no. Thank you for sharing that. It's always, it's, it's always great fun to hear what, and it's always, sometimes they relate, but there's always a nuance or something new. So, well, thanks very much for joining us, Kim, and sharing your insights and experiencing experiences, especially at, at such a, a challenging time in our world. Um, thank you, Todd. It's been a lot of fun. And um, I think one of the things that uh, 
is a part of Julia that we're seeing, at least in our home, play out every day is a real attention. There are only so many things we can do at home. And one of them is to plan um, thoughtfully how we're going to um, nourish both our bodies and our hearts and, you know, our minds during this time. And one of the ways that we do that the most in our home is to think about, plan for, dream about the kinds of meals that we can have that um, really touch us. So here's to Julia for that. Yeah, cheers to Julia for making sure that she recognized at that moment when she came back to the United States in the early 1960s that, hey, all this mechanization and futurism and taking the pleasure and knowledge out of the food system might be a bad thing and how prescient she was. Yeah. Yep. So thank you. Thanks for giving me that opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you want to learn more about New Belgium's family of craft beers or their progressive business practices, Kim had me wanting to actually apply for a job pretty quickly. You can go to newbelgium.com where you can learn how they are tackling the challenges of the pandemic. And you can even order beer for delivery, of course, depending on where you live. If you're keeping it virtual, you can follow them at New Belgium on Instagram and Twitter. Keep up with us and our our own ongoing efforts to help with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram or at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks as always to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>